0: Alright. Thank you, Kevin. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18 this morning. If so turn your Bibles with me there. If you've been with us, uh, you know that we've been going through Luke for a while. Uh, Last week, Kevin was also in Luke chapter 18 and we were introduced to uh, a story uh, where Jesus tells a parable about uh, a tax collector and uh, a Pharisee in the synagogue. And these two men standing in the synagogue, one begins to pray loudly so that everybody else can hear, Thank you, Lord, for not making me like this tax collector over here. Whereas the tax collector beats his chest and won't even look up into heaven and says, Lord, just have mercy on me a sinner and Kevin took us through that parable and into a story where Jesus rebukes his disciples for refusing to let children come to him and the stories last week both of those were to show us that what God requires of us if we're going to come to Jesus we're going to receive his salvation is not our merit or our attempted goodness but it is a felt awareness of our need That we have to come to him with the faith of a child and utter dependence. And Luke is continuing on with that theme this morning in verse 18, in a story that's probably familiar to most of us. It's often called the story of the rich young ruler. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 18, if you'll follow along with me through verse 30. It says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. But it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said in verse 27, What is impossible with man is possible with God. In verse 28, Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is none who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's go to Him and ask His help in understanding and applying it. Lord Jesus, these are hard words. Lord, more relevant to us than we would like to think. And Father, my prayer for my own heart and for the hearts of everyone here is that we would leave here truly saying that our only hope and peace is the righteousness of Christ. Lord, would You cause us to cast ourselves upon Your mercy this morning as You transform our hearts by Your Word? We ask it in Your name, Jesus. Amen. So, picture with me the scene, if you will. Imagine this man coming to Jesus. And we know a few things about him. We know from Luke's account that this was a ruler and it was a man of substantial wealth. And we know from Mark's Gospel that he was a young man Hence the composite title, right? The rich young ruler. Now, we don't know exactly what it means that this man was a ruler, but what is incredibly clear is that this was a guy who was ahead of the curve socially, spiritually, and materially. Right? Now, not a lot has uh, has really stayed the same over 2,000 years, um, but some things have. And some of the things that have stayed the same over 2,000 years is that, for one thing, young men like myself have a lot to learn from other people, not vice versa. Um, we have a lot to learn and grow in spiritually, and we're typically poor, okay? Uh, young people don't have a lot of wealth, So for this man, a young man, to be considered a ruler, likely uh, some kind of official in the local synagogue, for him to be able to say that he is respected among his peers, deemed a ruler among people who are older and have more life experience than him, for him to have this degree of wealth, and for him to be able to stand in front of a traveling rabbi and say, I've kept all of God's commands since my youth. This man was ahead of the curve. He was exceptional. This was the guy that you would want your sons emulating and your daughters dating. This guy was the guy. He had it going on. And yet, in Jesus' encounter with him, you would expect that maybe when Jesus is confronted by such a man, we would expect Jesus, probably because this is how we would have reacted, we would see an opportunity. Here's a wealthy guy with some social pull who can take my ministry to the next level. And instead, Jesus doesn't look at this man and see something that this wealthy man can do for him. Jesus looks and He sees a need. This conversation doesn't end with this man becoming Jesus' right-hand man or Jesus receiving a blank check that was going to take His ministry all over the globe and sell books. Right. Instead, we see this man walk away sad. Why? In short, I believe it's because his perceived goodness got in the way of actually receiving eternal life. But the thing he wanted most, his own goodness, at least what he thought was his own goodness, was getting in the way. And it was made worse by his wealth. His wealth perpetuated this blindness. And so over the course of this passage, Jesus is going to show us what it takes for someone who is perceived by other people and maybe even perceives themselves to be good. What it takes for somebody like that to be saved. And I think that if we forget that we've heard this passage probably a hundred times and we just, by God's grace, look at it with fresh eyes today, it might just shock us. And so let's dig in real quick and look at what Jesus says to this rich young ruler The first thing we need to see is that God requires brokenness. That's our first point this morning, is that God requires brokenness. When the young man approaches Jesus, he calls Him good teacher. Now, other gospel accounts, I believe it's Mark's actually tells us that when this young man actually approaches Jesus, he doesn't stroll up with some kind of like puffed up posture. It says that he ran and he knelt in front of Jesus. So this rich young ruler, despite all of his perceived goodness, he was anxious. His mind was troubled. There was a sense of urgency and despair. And he comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And he says, Good teacher, Alright, now, you and I know and affirm that Jesus is the Son of God. So calling Him good seems pretty appropriate. But Jesus doesn't seem to think so. But the man finishes his question and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what what can I do to be sure that I'll be saved in age to come? What can I do to know that I'll actually be saved? And rather than immediately answering the question, like we would expect, Jesus says, Why do you call me good? For no one is good except God alone. Alright, now, again, Jesus needs to shock us a little bit here. All right, this is a man of means, man that can take your ministry to the next level, and he comes and throws himself at your feet saying, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This is an evangelist's dream right here. And you would expect that Jesus would go into a talk about salvation by grace through faith. All you need to do is trust me. Let's line up a baptism. And instead, Jesus seems to be arguing over semantics, talking about this man's definition of Good. Seems strange, but let's see what Jesus says next. Luke doesn't even record Jesus giving the man a chance to answer. In verse 20, he says, You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And so on the heels of asking him, Why do you call me good? That's a weird way to start. But then Jesus presses in and he takes him to the Ten Commandments, specifically the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. These are the commands that are supposed to govern the way that we interact with our neighbor, the way that we love our neighbor. So is Jesus promoting some kind of a works based righteousness here? All right, buddy, if you'll just keep these commands right here, then that's all you have to be that's all you have to do to be saved. Of course, we would say certainly not. So what's the young man's response? Let's see if we can get down to what Jesus is trying to say here. Verse 21, the man hears these commands and he says, I have kept all of these since my youth. And there it is. Right? That's, that's the problem that Jesus is honing in on. Jesus is exposing that this man, even though he was thought well of by other people, even though he believed that he himself was a good person, Jesus exposing that he had actually failed to keep the law. This man had spent his life studying God's law, but he had only actually seen the surface of God's commands without ever perceiving their depth. Like a true legalist, he had boiled down God's commands to a fashion that he felt like he could keep them, felt certain he could keep them. And then he banked his eternity on it. And so when he heard, do not murder, check. No homicide investigations. And he heard, do not commit adultery. No problem. Check. And he wasn't alone in this. right? This was, the, this was the common misuse of God's law. And so it's no wonder then when Jesus came onto the scene and He begins His teaching ministry, when He's giving His Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins to reinterpret God's law. He looks at these same Jewish people that would have interpreted the law the same way this man had and said that if you have anger in your heart towards a brother, you're guilty of murder. He says if you're guilty of looking lustfully at anyone other than your spouse, you've already committed adultery in your heart. It's important to see that Jesus is not adding to God's law here. It's not Him saying anything new per se. What he's really doing is showing the true nature and intent of God's law. That while this man and many Jewish people would have looked and thought, great, I've managed to avoid committing these sins outwardly with my hands. What Jesus is showing is, yes, but you've broken them all in your heart. And that's what matters. See, God's law by its nature was not supposed to leave this man feeling accomplished, patting himself on the back was meant to lay his and our hearts completely bare. It's meant to expose our intentions. And the reason why is because it doesn't stack our righteousness against other people. The reason why God's law is meant to cut us so deeply is because it compares our goodness to God's absolute goodness and righteousness. This man felt fine about his standing. At least at some level, he was comfortable with what he'd done. And it's easy for us to feel that way when we compare ourselves to other people. What Jesus is trying to show him is is that goodness is not relative. Goodness is determined by comparing yourself to the one who is truly good, God Himself. And that's why Jesus asked the man early on, Why do you call me good? Jesus is showing that this guy had a very relative, loose definition of what good is, and because he had never compared himself to God's absolute goodness and holiness, he had a very warped understanding of what goodness was. Through his anxiety, despite his troubled mind, this man still believed at some level that he was good. And what Jesus is trying to show him through the law is that what is required for salvation is not our flimsy attempt at goodness. It's a deeply felt recognition of our total need, our total inability to save ourselves. To truly be saved, God requires our humility, our brokenness, and that was the effect that God's law should have had on this man. It's producing a sense of brokenness and humility about him. It should have put his face in the dirt, not having beating his chest about his goodness. And so, the first thing that people who are perceived and perceive themselves to be good need to hear is that they aren't actually good. You and I need to be reminded that our goodness is not good. So what does Jesus show him next? next thing is that God requires repentance. That's point number two. So when Jesus heard this, right after the man said, I have kept all these since my youth, Jesus heard this and He said to him, okay, well then one thing you still lack, just sell all you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and you can come follow Me. Alright, now let's stop there and just point out two things that Jesus is not saying really quickly. Number one, Jesus is not promoting some type of works-based righteousness. Jesus is not looking at this man and saying, look, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to come follow me, great. Just go do this really extreme thing. It's really extreme sign of devotion and obedience. And if you do this, then you can be an elite Christian. Then you can come and earn the right to follow me. What Jesus is actually telling the man to do is something very basic, something very fundamental to Christianity and its repentance. We'll talk more about that in a second. And the second thing that we need to know Jesus is not saying is He's also not saying that wealth is intrinsically bad. Right? You look back through the Old Testament, all all the Old Testament fathers that you read about, guys like Isaac and Jacob and Abraham even further back, right? God chose to bless these men materially. And that wasn't a sign of condemnation. That was a sign of His blessing. That He he was giving these guys wealth and possessions. So we don't believe that God hates wealth and possessions. We know that in the New Testament, people followed Jesus that still owned property, owned businesses. People like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man and gave his tomb to Jesus, right? Wealthy people followed Jesus, so this man's problem wasn't that he had wealth. So what is Jesus doing here? If He's telling this man, just go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, what is He actually getting at? He's really trying to show this man that he had failed to keep the first command which means that he certainly had not kept all ten. What's the first command? Exodus 20, right? You shall have no other gods before me. God's first command to the nation of Israel was, you shall have no other gods before me. The problem for this young man was not that he had wealth. The problem was that his wealth had him. Jesus' prescription for this man's idolatry wasn't radical it was repentance it was a tangible turning from his worship of lesser gods to follow jesus and in doing that he would find the salvation that he was so frantically trying to secure and how did this man respond to that it says that he walked away sad mark's gospel tells us that when jesus saw that the man had become sad his face had fallen Jesus loved him. That's such a beautiful detail to throw in right here, that in the midst of this man's blindness, in the midst of his spiritual pride, in the midst of his worship of lesser gods, Jesus looks at him and is moved with compassion. And it's important for us to see that, because we need to know that Jesus is not picking on this guy. He's not choosing to make some kind of public example out of him and beat him up in front of everybody. Jesus knows that before this young man or any of us can actually hear the good news of the gospel, which is what we so want Jesus to say is just give him a gospel presentation. Jesus knows that before he can receive the gospel, he has to hear the bad news. Before we can receive the good news of the gospel, we have to receive the bad news about our own human condition. Jesus knew that He, the bread of life, was for people who knew they were hungry. He knew that He, true living water, was for people who had thirsted after righteousness and found none in themselves. To truly embrace salvation, Jesus was calling this man to let go of his idol to turn, to repent. Verse 24, Jesus, seeing that He had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See, here's the thing about wealth is that nothing makes us feel more self-sufficient and gives us sort of a false sense of security like wealth does. This feeling of self-sufficiency that comes with wealth is what blinds us to our need for Christ. It keeps us blind to our actual brokenness. And wealth is particularly seductive because it holds out promises of security. It holds out promises of power. It holds out promises of people's respect and their admiration. It's just like Kevin reading from Ecclesiastes. These things are vanity. It's smoke that we can never actually grasp. And because it blinds our hearts like it does, Jesus says, He gives this dramatic picture of a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle. I don't know. Probably not many people in here that sew anymore. You know, I still had to take a sewing class when I was in middle school. Okay, all right, I see. See if your hands aren't good. Right, if you ever sew, Like to me I think the hardest part of sewing is always threading the needle, right? Uh, I'll never forget Somewhere around, I don't know, age 10, 11 years old, mom got to that point where she was like, I can't see this. Thread this needle, (laughs) right? Um, Because it's really difficult to get just a tiny little thread to go through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, now, what we need to avoid right here is going, thank goodness. Good thing I'm not very wealthy. Um,. I think there's two reasons that we still need to feel the reality of the danger that we're in. Even though we may not be flushed with cash, uh, there's two reasons that I think that we're still more danger than we like to think. Uh, number one is that the pursuit of wealth is still particularly intoxicating, isn't it? You don't actually have to have wealth for it to have your heart. And we don't call it the pursuit of wealth. We're way too, you know, way too nice and good godly people to ever call it just pursuing wealth. We call it pursuing financial security. What Jesus says is that even the pursuit of wealth can have our hearts. Wealth in any form has an ability to intoxicate us and to blind us. Not only can the pursuit be intoxicated, not only can the pursuit blind us to our need for Jesus, but we need to realize that we actually are more wealthy than we think. Right? As Americans, compared to the rest of the world, we have far more than we actually need. And don't tell me, you know, in case you're thinking, oh, like, you got a Netflix subscription, I know you're on Hulu Live, Right? we've got Apple Music, we have endless things that we spend money on to desensitize ourselves to distract us, regardless of what income bracket we fall into, we actually have been given more than we think. We've been given just enough to deaden us and to desensitize us from our need, to blind us to our actual brokenness. And so while Jesus does specifically point out wealth and its its danger, we know that our idols can take many forms. It doesn't just have to be wealth, Right? There's an endless list of idols that our hearts can grasp at that are vanity just like wealth is. So how do we know what our idol is? Maybe for you, I'm assuming all of us in here idolize wealth to some extent, but there's probably other idols that sit on the throne of our hearts as well. How do we know what those idols are? How do we identify that? Tim Keller has a really helpful way of spotting that. He said, simple, just ask yourself, what's the one thing I couldn't live without? What's the one thing that if this was taken from me, then my life would have no meaning, no purpose? If this was taken from me, I might as well die. I wouldn't know who I am anymore. When we answer that question, we begin to see what our idol is, what has our hearts. And what Jesus tells this man is, if you're going to follow me, there is no way for you to serve two masters. There is no way for you to love money and love me. There is no way that you can love other people's approval and love me. There is no way that you can love power and love me. Whatever our idol is, Jesus is calling us just to call this man to lay that idol down and to repent, to turn our worship. He makes it clear that the laying down of our idols will be different for each of us, right? I mean, this man, again, we think it's an extreme example because Jesus looks at this guy and says, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. What about my idol of people pleasing? What about my idol of filling in the blank? What does laying that down look like and it 's going to look like different things for different people as the Lord directs us, but what it definitely will mean it could mean by the way you selling your possessions we don 't need to think this was a a one time deal just for this rich young ruler could mean that for you could not. But one thing it definitely will mean is a total reorientation of our priorities, our pursuits, and our worship. Regardless of what tangible steps Jesus may have you take to lay aside your idol and give Him your exclusive worship, it will mean a total reorientation of our pursuits, our priorities, and our worship. We can't serve two masters. And this is what Jesus means in Luke 14 when He says, If anyone would come after Me... Let him deny himself and take up his cross and come follow me. This is not elite Christianity. This is basic Christianity. It's called repentance. God requires repentance from us. And the third point is that God gives what He requires. God gives what He requires. Verse 26, the disciples ask an amazing question. It says, "...those who heard it said, then who can be saved?" Now, when they ask who can be saved then, they're probably looking at Jesus' seeming rejection of this young man and thinking, if somebody like that can't get in, if even a man with wealth can't get in, who in the world can actually be saved? But I think their question is better than they knew. Because if you and I... If you and I are blind by our own goodness, if we think that we're better off than we actually are, and we look into God's law and we just sort of check off those boxes, and we're blinded to it, and to top it off, we're also worshiping lesser gods that also keep us blind to our need, Then, who in the world can be saved? How can we produce repentance? How can we muster up enough humility of heart to come and throw ourselves at Jesus' feet? And Jesus gives the answer, verse 27. He says, What is impossible with man is possible with God. See, Jesus gives us the answer. How do we muster up that kind of humility? How do we muster up that kind of brokenness, that kind of repentance? How do we cast aside our idols? How do we lay our deadly doing down? Jesus says you can't. A wealthy man on his own is hopeless. Proud people, good people, like me and you, are hopeless. Idolaters are hopeless on our own. Under our own strength, we have no hope. Jesus says, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. By God's power, we can be saved. See, God's grace comes running out to get people like you and me. People puffed up by their own goodness, self-deceived, worshipping lesser things. God's grace comes running out to get us. Ephesians 2 tells us that even the faith to trust in Jesus is a work of grace. It's not our own doing. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. By God's grace, the eyes of our heart can be opened so that we see God's law for what it was actually supposed to be. What Paul calls in Galatians 3, a tutor that was meant to lead us to Christ. God's grace can cause us to turn loose of our idols, to actually turn and repent, to reorient our worship and our priorities. God's grace can cause us to believe Jesus' promises and cling to them. And he, Jesus gives us such a promise in verse 28. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come. One of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes, I guarantee you've heard it, um, he was talking about how we are like children making mud pies in the slum when the promise of a vacation at the beach has been offered to us. See, Jesus offers us far more than we could ever lose in this life. Anything that we could ever repent of and give up, any idol that we let go of, Jesus offers us something far better. But we will never lay hold of it by our own doing. The life and the salvation that Jesus holds out to us can only be taken by God's grace, not by our effort. And so in closing, I'll say this. If you are convicted over your lack of brokenness, if you are convicted over your lack of humility and the fact that you think you are actually better than you are, if you're convicted over the fact that you worship lesser things, then do what this man refused to do and throw yourself at the mercy of God alone. The answer is not to try harder. It's to throw ourselves upon the grace of Jesus. It's like the great hymn says that all the fitness that He requires is for us to feel our need of Him. And this He gives us. This He gives us. So let's pray and ask the Lord to do that now. Lord Jesus, we admit that we are a self-deceived people. Father, even as Christians, even as believers, Lord, we are still deceived. We're proud. And we worship lesser things that could never compare to You. And Father, we we hear that. Sometimes we see it. And we think, "All right, well, I'll just try harder. And Father, what we desperately need is for You and Your grace to come and cause us to just throw ourselves at Your mercy. Offering You nothing. Making no bold promises. Not having a higher estimation of ourselves than we ought to, but just simply throwing ourselves at Your mercy trusting that with You it is possible for proud people to become broken and for idolaters to become worshipers of God. Father, if there's anybody in here that does not know You, that has a warped view of goodness, Father, would You, by Your Spirit, cause them to see themselves in light of Your law? Father, would You cause it to be like a tutor that in laying them bare, showing them their own emptiness, Father, that they would come to You for mercy and for salvation. Father, we thank You for Your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.